Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. And Iran... We're approaching the May 8th anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear deal. Uh, the slow motion confrontation is accelerating. Although Iran hopes that it can outlast the, the Trump administration and has refused to negotiate on the nuclear issue, preferring to deal with uh, a future administration that might come to power in 2020, uh, the Trump administration continues uh, to its maximum pressure policy uh, and continues to ratchet up sanctions. Uh, most recently, uh, it's cut uh, waivers that allowed eight countries uh, to import Iranian oil uh, since the oil sanctions were reimposed last November. Uh, those sanctions have reduced Iran oil exports uh, by about 50% to a little more than 1 million barrels per day. And the U.S. government estimates that that has deprived Iran of about $10 billion of uh, oil income. Uh, the administration has assessed that the, uh, the oil market has sufficient excess uh, production capacity to bring Iranian oil exports down to zero and has therefore uh, eliminated those eight waivers completely. Uh, there's also reports that it may end nuclear waivers on three uh, Iranian facilities. Uh, so the sanctions are getting stronger and there's more to come. Uh, the administration also added sanctions on Iran's Revolutionary Guard, designating them as a, a foreign terrorist organization, and that will uh, enable the administration to bring criminal charges, not only against uh, Revolutionary Guard officials, but also uh, officials of foreign entities that, that aid and abet Iranian terrorism. Uh, our panel today will will look at the uh, nuclear and terrorism fronts and the evolving confrontation with Iran, and we're uh, fortunate to have with us uh, three knowledgeable experts, uh, including Dr. Christopher Harmon of the Marine Corps University, Fred Flights of the Center for Security Policy, uh, and our first speaker, David Albright. And actually, I I'm remiss because I didn't mention before I started the introductions that if uh, I'd like to ask everybody to turn off their phones, uh, including the speakers, because I know I've been on panels where the speakers' phones have gone off. It's always fun. Uh, but just to get back to the uh, introductions, uh, David Albright will focus on nuclear issues. Uh, he's a physicist and the founder and president of the nonprofit Institute for Science and International Security based here in Washington, D.C. 
He directs the project work of the Institute, heads its fundraising efforts, and chairs its board of directors. In addition, he regularly publishes and conducts scientific research. He's written numerous assessments on secret nuclear weapons programs throughout the world. Uh, during his career, he's testified numerous times on nuclear issues uh, before the U.S. Congress. Uh, he's spoken to many groups, technical workshops and conferences, and brief government decision-makers. You've probably seen him uh, cited frequently in the media, especially uh, on some of the, the great work he and his organization have done on the Iran nuclear archive. It's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, he's auth also authored five books, including his most recent, uh, Taiwan's Former Nuclear Weapons Program. Uh, David? Okay, thank you very much. No, happy to be here. Um, as John, John, Jim mentioned, almost a year has passed since the Trump administration ended its participation in the Iran nuclear deal or, or joint comprehensive plan of action. Um, and it argued that the deal just creates a path for Iran um, to obtain missile-delivered nuclear weapons and is best replaced as soon as possible. Uh, despite the reimposition of U.S. sanctions, which Jim outlined have been pretty extensive, and the administration's demands for Iran to halt a variety of its disruptive, aggressive regional activities, Iran has, has not withdrawn from the deal and has remained largely within the deal's major nuclear limitations. However, Iran has not been pressured successfully to allow robust International Atomic Energy Agency inspections that would permit inspectors to really get to the bottom of the fundamental question of whether Iran has a peaceful nuclear program. Negotiations to create a better deal that addresses the deal's well-known weaknesses, such as sunsetting nuclear limitations and ineffective ballistic missile constraints, have not yet emerged. Um, how long Iran will stay in the deal is difficult to predict, but, it, but Iran appears concerned that leaving could worsen its economic situation significantly since the European partners to the deal would likely reimpose their own sanctions and China and Russia could further reduce trade. Now, there's many issues on the nuclear side, and what I'd like to do is just go through a series of them, and, and particularly ones that are, are relevant today. Um, Jim mentioned the Nuclear Archive, which my organization has spent a lot of the last nine months um, trying to review and understand. And, and, it, and it is a lot of new information in it. Um, it, it really has a fundamental kind of change in paradigm about how you have to think about the Iranian nuclear weapons program as it existed in the early 2000s. One is that it was a program to build five nuclear weapons by early to mid-2004 and to even build a nuclear test site that could be used. And, and, that, and the plan to do that is highly um, specified within, within the archives. Now, one of the issues today is, is that you – know, you say, well, this is a program from the early 2000s. But this archive was curated. It was carefully kept. And its existence, and it, and it depends on it having sensitive nuclear weapons information in it, which it does, tremendous amount of it, that its existence is inconsistent with Iran's commitment under the Nonproliferation Treaty, the, joint, the JCPOA, and its safeguards agreements. And when archives like this were found in other countries or even subsets of these, this kind of archives, those countries moved to destroy those and viewed them as their possession 
of those documents is a violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and, it, and that specifically was South Africa, um, Switzerland, and, and Libya. Another quick thing I want to mention is that the IA has a tough time getting to the sites mentioned in the archives. And, and the archives has many new sites that were not known to the IA or Western intelligence. I've had Israeli government officials who study this archive tell me that there are, there are major nuclear sites in the archive that they did not know about until they read the archive. Um, now, again, I should mention the program was downsized um, in, in 2003, uh, and Iran was responding tr to tremendous international pressure at that time, which many of you may remember. We invaded Iraq. Um, Iran was viewed as part of the axis of evil. The inspectors were getting stonewalled, but nonetheless uncovering all kinds of secret, what we call fuel cycle activities. So they did downsize, but the archives showed that they didn't end it didn't even halt it. They reoriented it. Some activities were continued on a, in a better camouflaged way. Some activities were folded um, into uh, or blended into civilian or non-nuclear military activities. Those were The latter would be things that they, they would have a, a cover for, um, which means that the program may continue today. And so the IA needs access to the sites, people, and equipment mentioned in the archive to get to the bottom of this fundamental question if Iran is, is, is working on nuclear weapons or still seeking them. Um, the, another issue which I do want to bring up because it, it, it's, it's really trying to correct the record in a sense. I mean, it's very common in some of the public debate where people mischaracterize the work of the IA and, and claim that they're they're saying that Iran is in compliance with the JCPOA. They, they have never written that. They've never said it. Um, and it also it misses a key line in the report every three months that that this, where the IA states that it's it has an inability to determine the absence of undeclared nuclear materials and activities which is another way of stating that it cannot verify the correctness and completeness of Iran's declaration, declarations and provide credi credible assurances that Iran's nuclear program is peaceful, which really is the heart of the matter. And the, and the way we increasingly think about it is, is that a lot of the public attention is on the trees in the forest. How much enriched uranium did they make? How much heavy water um, have they, are they abiding by the caps? The issue of the archives... This question of, of the uh, is it a peaceful program is really the forest. And so I think what we would say is, is that, that, that while many of the trees remain healthy as to Iran's compliance with individual deal limitations, the forest itself or the broader context of the peacefulness of Iran's nuclear program is not well. Another issue I want to cover um, is – what we are seeing, and I think others, is just a kind of a growing support among Democratic presidential candidates to, to rejoin the deal, drop sanctions, and sort of pick up where things were left off uh, when, when, when um, Obama left office. And I think we were – my organization and I worked extensively on trying to fix the deal. We were also agnostic or neutral on the whole question of do we support or – opposed the deal in the summer of 2015. Um, 
we assessed the deal extensively and identified many weaknesses, but we didn't take a position. And we were part of this group called the Fixers. So obviously, I was disappointed when Trump withdrew from the or stopped participation in the deal. Um, but that being said, it's now a year later. Sanctions have been reimposed. Uh, pressures building on Iran. Europeans are coming along to the fundamental U.S. positions because they did during the fixed negotiations. There's problems in inspections. Sunsets are a problem. And, and uh, we can't live with the ballistic missile program as it is. So, so in, in terms of restructuring or getting a new deal, obviously the Europeans are resistant now. But on the substance, they're coming along. And to just throw all that out, including all the leverage, and, and in a sense repeat the mistake that we were making – under the Obama administration, seems particularly ill-advised and, and, in fact, dangerous to U.S. national security. So I want to just point that out. Um, the last thing I'd like to briefly cover, and I think Fred may cover more of this and can answer in questions, is this question of what are called nonproliferation waivers, which could be decided today. Um, that If you do have sanctions applied on, on Iran, um, what nuclear, civil nuclear activities can continue, and particularly ones that are outlined in the, in the JCPOA. So it affects, and I'll just quickly mention two, there's something called the Iraq reactor, um, which was a heavy water reactor designed or capable of, of when finished, of making quite a bit of, of even weapon-grade plutonium for nuclear weapons. It was a target of the negotiators to redesign it um, and make it, so it wouldn't make very little plutonium. It wouldn't be weapon-grade plutonium. And it would be in fuel that would be extremely difficult to chemically process to separate out the plutonium. If the plutonium's in a fuel, can't use it in a bomb. But, but it, um, if you separate it, you can. And that program continues. And normally, we would support the waiver on the Iraq reactor. It's a reactor redesign being done by China now that the U.S. stepped out uh, with Britain. But... Uh, the head of the Atomic Energy Organization issued a statement a couple months ago, and this is in a report on our website, that that we fooled you, negotiators. We actually did some things that allow us to kind of cheat on what's supposed to happen on the Iraq reactor. And, and again, I'm really skipping over the details, but it, he was probably trying to appease his hardliners, but he raises an issue of they cheated. And, and, and it involves some tubes that were procured overseas that Iran can't make. So why waive unless you've settled this issue? I mean, and, and they can, Iran can settle it easily. They can present the tubes and destroy them in a verifiable manner. And we can get back to where we were. On Fordow, I must say, we also supported the waiver. They, Fordow is a deeply buried enrichment plant. Uh, serves no economic purpose. They have the Tons enrichment plant. And they wanted to keep it. The negotiators in the West lost on that. They keep it. They're doing something called stable isotope separation, which is a very small process in terms of a number of centrifuges. Um, and everything, again, okay, fine, lost on that one, live with it. But then in our studying of the archives, um, we found a picture that proves that this site was built to make weapon-grade uranium as part of a nuclear weapons program. And, and Iran then put it in the category of this is too obvious 
of a problem with nuclear weapons, we're going to continue to build it in secret. That was discovered and revealed in, in 2009. So here you have a site that was at the heart of the Iranian nuclear weapons program in the early 2000s that they tried to continue building in secret after they end supposedly, well, down, we call it downsize the program. And that's new evidence was not known. Iran's story is we didn't start building it until 2007. We repurposed an old tunnel complex that was controlled by the IRGC. So, so you have a situation where why, why wouldn't we have this evidence dealt with? Because what is for now? And one can make an argument post-archives. It's just a, it's a military enrichment plant dormant now, but would be used in a surge to get nuclear weapons. And it's a facility that a country like Israel probably couldn't bomb, and it would probably stress us out to really destroy it. So why would we agree to its continuation given the new evidence? And stable isotope separation is fine. I mean, it's a program in in cooperation with Russia. Just move it to Natanz. It's only a half a dozen centrifuges in the old centrifuges. So it, it's not a it's not a big deal, and and I and so we shifted our position to um, to waiving. So let me let me end there. I think I've gone over a little bit, and um, happy to answer questions later. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Christopher Harmon. He's the Bren Chair of Great Power Competition at the Brute Krulak Center on Innovation and Creativity, the Marine Corps University. Uh, Chris has worked for the House of Representatives as a foreign affairs aide for many years and uh, as a professor of international relations at Marine Corps University. He's now uh, the Bren Chair, uh, as I mentioned, the Brute Krulak Center. He's the lead author of uh, six books, including Terrorism Today and The Terrorist Argument. He's written essays or chapters for Orbis, Oxford Bibliographies, and Cambridge University Press, and he serves on the editorial boards for two terrorism journals. Uniquely, he has directed graduate-level counterterrorism programs at both the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies in Germany and the Daniel K. Inouye uh, Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies. So he's very balanced on the, the East and the West. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jim. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm asked to talk about a uh, terrorism organization today, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. Uh, and uh, it, it puts me in memory of, of being here in 04, uh, which was one of my first talks on how terrorist groups end and I'm afraid I can't report any progress with respect to the IRGC. Uh, with the chair's permission, I'm going to say under five categories, a few brief things. First, to talk about some of the older attacks that divined the, the, the Iranian regime. Then a word or two on some of the newer attacks, which indicate its unchanged character. Um, mention some of the countries affected by international terrorism, Iran directs. Uh, mention the Revolutionary Guard specifically, uh, which some of my colleagues are interested in because of their interest, in, because of its interest in nuclear affairs, and then make a comment on, on the sanctions on the Guard, which are new as of last month. So first, some of those older attacks, there, there were, there were many, 
when when three buildings were shattered in Beirut in 1983, the U.S. and France both looked into it pretty seriously, and it seems that the operators involved were Hezbollah, which is a direct ally of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, and that they were linked, in fact, to its uh, possession of a barracks in Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. They had moved there in force during the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, France chose at that time to retaliate against those guards' barracks uh, in the Bekaa. Uh, the U.S. didn't. There was a second pattern in those older days of the 80s and 90s of assassinations abroad. Um, quite striking, many Iranian dissidents or exiles were pursued or even killed in European countries, especially like France and Germany. In one case, German investigations and a telephone intercept made it evident that the Kurds in the Mykonos restaurant in Berlin in 1992 who were killed were done, were done so in an action set in motion by Iran and with weapons from Iran and by Hezbollah members, including some with close association with the Revolutionary Guards back in Iran. These kinds of attacks unfortunately became quite common and almost ceased to draw much news. In 96, where the Saudis were hosting us uh, at uh, Dehran, uh, the Kobar Towers, of course, were attacked, an Air Force facility. NSC experts were later to write that high-level Iranians were involved and some of the Saudi perpetrators were thought to be living in Tehran. Another inquiry was by Louis Free, whose FBI devoted a couple of years of investigations to Kobar Towers. He concluded it was Iranian planned, and he writes in his book, My FBI, that President Rafsanjani all but admitted the culpability. Free says that one of the drivers on the scene had been recruited into the Saudi Hezbollah cell uh, by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, and he decided ultimately that both the IRGC and the intelligence service, MOIS, quote, had both been in on the planning and the execution, although they couldn't persuade at the time the National Security Advisor Sandy Berger of that fact. Second point, sort of more recent actions. Iran continues to engage in lethal activity well outside the country. Sometimes it's under the IRGC chapter called the Quds Force, which is their external operations unit. In Baghdad, for example, or close to it in 07 at Karbala, there was a violent attack which took some American lives, and the fingerprints of the Guard Corps uh, were all over that attack. As you can tell from David Christ's remarkable book called The Twilight War or from Matthew Levitt's work. Some of the other actions that killed Americans were due to uh, EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, which had been made uh, in Iran. Iran has also continued its war on Saudi Arabia. So, for example, they assassinated one of the diplomats in Karachi in May of 11. And in even more astounding, in that same year, 2011, uh, the guards and other Iranians were intimately involved with a plot right here in Washington, which was supposed to end in Georgetown, uh, with the death of the Saudi ambassador to the United States. Uh, three, Iranian violence uh, outside Iran and, and Lebanon. 
the U.S. pointed to this formally and officially in classified reports uh, in a report I've found from from 85, for example, going back quite that far. There was a debate at the time between the so-called the pragmatists who purportedly include Assembly Speaker Afsanjani about uh, certainly we're going to do some terrorism, but it's better to export the revolution via propaganda and subversion uh, versus the the so-called Islamic extremists within the regime, which this CIA report I'm mentioning uh, says we're actually in favor of direct export of terror and, and frequent export and using, among other tools, the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, We can tell from Asian and some Latin sources and uh, some uh, other scholars uh, that the attacks have occurred in places as different as Kenya, South Africa, Turkey, Thailand, Tirana. Um, In the Buenos Aires case, uh, it was very definitely tied to uh, Iranian agents, and the indictments that Argentina published uh, show that the Quds Force was purportedly involved. Uh, In the 80s and 90s, the pattern of assassinations then continued, that is, well outside the country, beyond those I've mentioned in places like Belgium and France. In just last year, 2018, just last year, uh, a whole series of European countries and their sovereignty were affected by a major plot directed by Iran against the MEK, the famous Iranian secular dissidents. Number four, the guards uh, in particular. From the beginning, they've been a sort of a religious army defend, defending the regime. Their job was internal, but it swiftly turned into one that was external. I'm sure the logic was that so many of the enemies are outside their borders. And so there's an 87 report in intelligence recently declassified that points to foreign ministries directory of these folks uh, in operations abroad and refers specifically to the Revolutionary Guard as, quote, the principal agent of Iranian terrorism in Lebanon and using its own resources, guard resources, uh, as well as diplomatic and intelligence organizations to support that kind of effort the guard was involved with. Uh, Estimating their size is is difficult. A a recent book from Oxford uses the figure of 125,000 of the full-time guard. However, there are a whole series of military branches closely associated with it, some of which are huge. Uh, and it has a rather outsized uh, power, uh, both military and economic. Uh, guards have been directly involved in incidents of uh, violence in Iraq during the last insurgency. And one example, for example, is a striking case in which a Quds uh, Force Brigadier General was quite literally caught driving a truck full of explosive material uh, over the border uh, into Iraq. Um, the IRGC's logo is suggestive of a close relationship with Hezbollah, and that suggestion is verified by all kinds of reports that show an intimate reaction, a relationship between the Guard and Hezbollah in many, many respects. The country reports on terrorism, which our State Department publishes each year, often comment on that and talk about how Hezbollah trains in Iran uh, just as the Quds Force goes abroad to train others involved with Hezbollah and other groups. 
So that brings me to the fifth and final point, uh, and that is simply that the recent tightening of sanctions seems to me to be well-judged. There has been a long and sometimes confusing series of various sanctions imposed by the United States government. Uh, the latest done in April are supposedly the first to fix on a whole section of a foreign government, in this case, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, with all of its military forces and, and its uh, also paramilitary militias. IRGC is at the center of, of the regime in Tehran. It, its power is intimately related to other political authorities inside Iran. There's also an immense economic power associated with the Guard. They own or operate things like dams, centers of industry, banks, power companies, missile and armaments factories. If the U.S. is really going to press Iran economically, then it's almost required that we press the Revolutionary Guard. A second dimension of this is the economic functions, because so many of what the Guard does include ways that are useful for transferring money or personnel or arms outside the country. That goes to their economic entities. Uh, it goes to their little airline, spelled Mahan, M-A-H-A-N, Air, which has been sanctioned already uh, for moving weapons abroad. So the Guard has economic powers as well as military, and if we're making economic sanctions as an alternative to war, it makes sense to sanction uh, the guards. And the last point is that Iran's problems and, 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 and assets in this area are directly related to our problem with Korea. So we're dealing with two rogue regimes which are intimately connected in many ways. One of the best authorities on this would seem to be Bruce Bechtel. He's a former DIA officer and now a well-known academic who's done a series of books um, his, his last came out just last year, and he's shown the close relationship between Iran and, and uh, North Korea and the way in which the Revolutionary Guards are closely tied into that business, as are other Iranian actors. So Iran aids Hamas, Hezbollah, and a series of terror groups, and it sometimes uh, does so with Korean uh, resources. Um, upon reading... Dr. Bechtel's last book, I sort of had this thought on, on which I'll close, which is that if there's one thing we think about with North Korea, it's, it's characterized by an unusual and most inhuman imbalance between guns and butter. Um, it, it has little desire to make butter, perhaps because there's so little bread to butter. Uh, but North Korea does produce and it produces, especially in the area of nuclear technology, missiles, small arms, cyber war. Well, halfway around the world, Iran is, in, is closely interested in all of those four things. And so it's natural in a way that their efforts are linked. And the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's core is one of the many ways those two countries are linked. Well, thank you, Chris. Our final speaker is Fred Flights. He's the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. He served in 2018 as deputy assistant to President Donald Trump and chief of staff to National Security Advisor John Bolton. Before his White House position, uh, Fred was the senior vice president at the Center for Security Policy. He previously served in U.S. national security positions for 25 years with the CIA, DIA, Department of State, and the House Intelligence Committee staff. 
He's had uh, uh, his work for the CIA included serving as a political analyst, military analyst, weapons of mass destruction analyst, and collection officer. He served in the State Department for four years as chief of staff to the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control, five years with the House Intelligence Committee staff, and he was a senior aide to the chairman, uh, as well as the committee's uh, expert on Iranian and North Korean nuclear programs. He's also the author of uh, several books, including Obama Bomb, A Dangerous and Growing National Security Fraud, and The Coming North Korea Nuclear Nightmare. That's, we'll talk about that on a different panel. But Fred? Thank you, Jim. I'd like to thank the Heritage Foundation for holding this important panel and to my friend Jim Phillips for inviting me here today. And, and it's really an honor to be here with such distinguished experts. The timing of this panel couldn't be better since it comes near the one-year anniversary of one of the best foreign policy decisions one of the boldest decisions that our president has made, and that's withdrawing from the fraudulent nuclear deal with Iran. You may remember the naysayers saying a year ago that this withdrawal was not going to work. Other nations would not follow suit. The U.S. would be isolated. It was going to lead to a war. Well, there's been no war. The U.S. isn't isolated. We know this was a very successful decision that has put the United States in a much stronger position. We know Iran is far more isolated because of the president's leadership. What I want to do in my brief time up here is to try to address the issue of the president's withdrawal from the nuclear deal in terms of five popular myths we see frequently reported in the news media and by foreign policy experts. The first of these is that the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, was a good deal and was a reasonable way of dealing with Iran's nuclear program. And, and to rebut that, I'd like to start with things that President Obama said uh, before the agreement was announced. For example, he told the uh, APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, in, 20, in 2007 that the world has to stop Iran's uranium enrichment program. That wasn't done in the nuclear deal. Iran is still enriching uranium with over 5,000 centrifuges right now. He said during a debate with Mitt Romney in October 2012 that Iran has to recognize it needs to give up its nuclear program and abide by UN resolutions that are in place. He said they end their nuclear programs very straightforward. This didn't happen. I agree with President Obama. That's what should be in a real nuclear deal with Iran. That's not what we got. In December 2013 at Brookings, the president said they don't need to have an underground fortified facility like Fordow, which, which David talked about, in order to have a peaceful program. They don't need to have a heavy water reactor at Iraq for a peaceful program. They don't need the centrifuges they possess. I agree with President Obama. A peaceful deal with Iran, a reasonable deal, should not have these things. But what did we get? We got an agreement that allows Iran to continue to perfect its weapons capability by enriching uranium while the deal is in effect. It's enriching uranium with over 5,000 centrifuges. It's developing advanced centrifuges. It agreed, we think, to disable a reactor that will be capable of producing heavy uh, 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 plutonium. But frankly, there are questions whether that plutonium will be weapons-grade or not. I don't believe that it would be. I believe Iran would be getting a quarter of a weapons worth of plutonium every year when that reactor is, is done. And what we're doing here is that we're teaching Iran how to build and operate a heavy water reactor to produce the most desired nuclear weapons fuel, plutonium. 
And I might add that David Albright's organization has written some very good reports on whether or not Iran actually disabled this reactor and does it have plans to redesign it so it could make more plutonium. I encourage you to check them out at his website. The agreement excludes missiles. A nuclear weapons program has three legs, making nuclear fuel, developing a warhead, and a delivery system. That's Iran's missile program. Iran is the only nation in history to have missiles with a range of 2,000 kilometers or more without having nuclear weapons. And the idea they're building missiles to carry explosives or rocks or animals, who knows what they want to put in the warheads, is absurd. These missiles are designed to carry nuclear warheads to attack Israel, Europe, and the United States. And we shouldn't accept the fiction by Iranian officials otherwise. And we heard this from Prime Minister Zarif on Fox News over the weekend. But even worse, the negotiations that produced the JCPOA actually weakened UN resolutions that passed sanctions on Iran's missile program. That is, the international protections against Iran's missile program uh, proliferating are worse because of these negotiations. And finally, there were the ridiculous economic concessions to Iran. Iran got $150 billion in sanctions relief from the deal and $1.7 billion in cash flown secretly to Iran to free American prisoners. Now, this reportedly was to pay back a a debt that the U.S. owed to Iran, which is an illegitimate argument because Iran owes the U.S. far more than we supposedly owed them. But this was not repayment of a debt. This was ransom. This was ransom to to release American citizens who were arrested only because they were Americans. This was an effort to pay ransom to release American hostages. So I think if you look at this program up and down, this is a program that allowed Iran to continue to promote its nuclear weapons program. I might also add it has very short provisions. Major sections of it uh, expire in 2025. More of them expire in 2030. These are the so-called sunset provisions that David Albright talked about in a moment. The deal is a fraud. Iran got everything it wanted in this agreement, and it's something that uh, it, that President, Obama, President Trump had to get out of as soon as possible because it was making us less safe. The second myth is that the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA was illegal and immoral because the agreement was binding on the U.S. and withdrawing from the agreement would result in war. Now, the idea that these agreements were going to res- not going into these agreements would result in war or withdrawing from them is a canard that's long been discredited. We know that President Obama and Secretary Kerry said that when the agreement was being contemplated. We've been hearing this lately that there was going to be a war. You know, the, President Trump withdrawing from this agreement, there's no sign whatsoever it's going to re- – this is just fear mongering. It's not going to result in a war. But was it binding on the United States? For an agreement like this to be binding on future presidents, it has to be submitted as a treaty. Treaties have to be ratified by the U.S. Senate by a two-thirds vote. I note that this agreement was ratified by the Iranian parliament, but the Obama administration deliberately did not submit it for 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 ratification by the U.S. Senate because it knew it couldn't be ratified, that the vast majority of Americans opposed this agreement. So they tried to make it binding by having a U.N. Security Council resolution citing Chapter 7 of the U.N. Charter endorse it a week after the agreement was announced. That way, the Obama administration could claim this agreement, which they didn't send to the Senate, is binding on future presidents. Wrong. And and I'll put this the way John Bolton likes to do it. The U.N. Charter does not trump the U.S. Constitution. 
You can't go around the requirements of the U.S. Constitution by going to the United Nations. This was a sham. And what's even worse is that the agreement was announced in mid-July 2015. On the 20th of July, this vote was taken in the Security Council before the U.S. Congress had a chance to even review the agreement. It was a sham. And, and you'll often see experts on TV saying, well, this agreement is binding because the U.N. says it is. No, it could have been submitted as a treaty. It wasn't. It was not legally binding. It was an executive agreement by President Obama. President Trump was completely within his rights to pull out of it. The third myth is that the U.S. should not have withdrawn from the agreement because Iran is in compliance. And we know this because the IAEA and the U.S. intelligence community has told us so. Now, you know the IAEA has said repeatedly that uh, Iran is complying with its uh, N- JCPOA commitments. And I think David Albright explained very clearly that they have not said Iran is in compliance, that they have not violated parts of the agreement. Well, I would, I would say the reason this is is because the IAEA has a, a motto of don't ask, don't inspect. The IAEA doesn't ask to go to facilities that Iran would deny them access to because if that happened, the IAEA would have to report that Iran is not in compliance. Iran will not allow inspections of military sites. That's where the covert nuclear weapons activity is, is taking place if it is, if it is being conducted. There's one exception. Iran did allow inspection of a site called Parchin in the fall of 2015, but it had restrictions on what could, how this could be done. Iranians had to do the inspections. The Iranian inspectors only were allowed to look at a small number of facilities. We know that a layer of soil was released, was, was removed from the Parchin compound. Buildings were washed down. The insides of the buildings were painted. Equipment was was removed. But even though Iran went to these extraordinary measures to sanitize Parchin, minute samples of nuclear uh, particles were found suggesting that nuclear weapons work was conducted there that Iran did not admit to. Now, under paragraph 14 of the JCPOA, Iran was supposed to cooperate with an ongoing IAEA inspection of its prior military activities, nuclear-related activities. It did not cooperate with these uh, uh, with this inspection. A report was put out by the IAEA in, Jan- in December of 2015 that had numerous indications that Iran was not fully forthcoming, didn't answer certain questions, and, and lied. Despite that, the Obama administration was so desperate for an agreement, it closed the file on Iran's prior nuclear activities, and move forward to give it sanctions relief. Clearly, Iran was in violation of paragraph 14, but we now know, based on the nuclear archive documents acquired by Israel last year, that Iran's violation was far worse. Iran's refusal to declare its covert nuclear program is far worse than we knew. For example, it, we know from the archive documents Iran was planning to manufacture five warheads at 10 kilotons each. It was planning an underground nuclear test, and there was an effort to acquire highly enriched uranium from abroad. But let's talk about the IAEA. The IAEA keeps saying that Iran is complying with its JCPOA obligations. Last spring, the Israelis told the IAEA of a secret atomic warehouse in Tehran where there was nuclear equipment and fissile material. Now, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced this at the General Assembly last last uh, last fall. When did the IAEA inspect this facility? Last month. 
April 2019. It took them a year. The IE did not want to inspect this facility because of their don't ask, don't inspect policy. They don't want to find information that suggests Iran is in noncompliance. And concerning the U.S. intelligence community, when Dan Coates and Dina Haspel appeared in January at a threat briefing before the Senate Intelligence Committee, they did not mention this archive material. They did not mention the secret archive, the secret warehouse in Tehran where Iran reportedly had nuclear, nuclear equipment and fissile material. And I have to say that I, I don't understand how intelligence officials could say that Iran is in compliance with the agreement when it is glaringly obvious from the archive material and other information that it is not in compliance. The fourth point, and I, we're gonna, I'm going to disagree a little bit with David here. We should have stayed in the agreement and fixed it. I'm sorry, but I think this was impossible. A good agreement would stop enrichment, would stop its heavy water reactor, would include reasonable inspections such as any time, any place, its missile program, stopping terrorism, and its meddling in the region. All the fixers wanted to do was to change the sunset clauses. That would extend a bad deal. It never made any sense. And, and I got to tell you, my organization has fought hard against people. I'm afraid some of them were conservatives who pursued the misguided goal of just extending the deal, removing the sunset clauses, because they thought somehow that would make it a good deal. Now, that's what the Europeans wanted. And I think that there are some people in this town who were just too worried about the Europeans being upset with the United States, and they went along with this ridiculous effort to remove the sunset clauses. As long as Iran is enriching uranium, this is a bad deal. And we know Iran does not want to give up that. We have to put pressure on Iran for the day when it is ready to give that up. And the final point, the president's withdrawal strategy would never succeed because other nations wouldn't join him and would would remain in the deal, especially European states. We know European companies have left this agreement in droves. We have worked closely with our uh, allies in the Middle East, Israel, Saudi Arabia. This administration has rebuilt a relationship with Israel and Saudi Arabia that was damaged by the policies of the uh, of the Obama administration. Uh, we are now pursuing a policy where we're open to talks with Iran on a good deal. But in the meantime, we are delegitimizing Iran's missile and nuclear program. We're making it clear it is not okay that Iran receives any nuclear technology. We should not allow any missile-related technology to go to Iran. The damage done to the sanctions regime of the Obama years, we haven't, we haven't put back together yet, but we're in the process of doing so. What we have in place right now is a U.S. administration that recognizes the threat that Iran poses to international security, to American security, and to our most important ally in the Middle East, Israel. And we're not going to agree to a bad deal just because we want a deal. We're not worried that the Europeans don't like us. We're trying to do the right thing. And with a president who isn't worried about bucking the foreign policy establishment, who tries to do the right thing for our country, regardless of what the graybeards in the foreign policy establishment tells him, this is not an unexpected decision. This is the way Mr. Trump operates. I'm proud that I've worked with uh, the president and with uh, Sec uh, National Security Advisor Bolton to get us out of this terrible deal, and I'm looking forward to supporting them in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. And uh, before I open it up to uh, the audience for questions, I'd just like to ask the panel a question. Uh, and pursuing this this uh, angle of what a good deal would look like, if I can... Uh, maybe draw David out a little uh, on what uh, 
in, he would see a good deal as looking like, uh, and how, how likely that is, uh, I mean, this would presumably come in the second term of a Trump administration. Uh, how likely do you think that the, the U.S. could get to that and then, uh, and then maybe have, uh, Fred, uh, discuss a little more about what, what he thinks, uh, the administration's going to be doing in the future? I think the, um, the idea in the fix, Fred's right, we weren't pushing for an end to enrichment. And, and I don't want to actually refight that. We were asking for more <laughs> than what you said, but that, that's, but that's a year ago, and, and we're now – You're better than most. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're now in a different situation. And, and, and I think the Trump administration moved into a, a position of no enrichment. And one of the things that the IA inspectors have learned – during the visits um, to centrifuge R&D facilities in, in Iran is that their centrifuge program will never be economical. They'll never produce low-enriched uranium cheaper than what they could simply buy internationally. And, and one of the ideas in the fix, if I can revisit it, was in Europe, they, they're more legalistic than we are and more hung up on the UN. But if you have a program that's going to expand that has no economic justification at all is being put in places like Fordow, well, then, in essence, it's a military program, which means it's a, in, in, if you use that definition, if Iran expands its program, it's a violation of the JCPOA. And that, and that, and that, that probably is not a bad position to have. That, that Iran has no need for enrichment. They can buy what they need internationally. And, and, the, and so the goal should be no enrichment program in Iran. I mean, for us, that's a, a step toward it. Um, and, but I think I agree with that now, that it's not why, why settle for anything when they don't need anything and they can't justify it economically. And they had enrichment was a key part of their nuclear weapons program in the past. Now, on inspections, the problem, the urgency is now. You know, that, that that shouldn't be delayed. Um, the U.S. really needs and, and the world needs to press the IA to do a much better job. And, uh, and it's going to have to take the world to do it because the IA, as Fred pointed out, is highly hesitant to create a conflict. Um, the other is the missile program has to be dealt with. I mean, there has to be, and I don't know how that's going to work, but you have to start getting constraints on their missile program. I mean, one of the things you find in the archives, which, which intrigued me, is when we translated some documents, is that uh, the IRGC um, Air Force, or um, I always get the names wrong, but the, the aerospace part of the IRGC uh, had a construction company, and, and they were building the facility to make weapon-grade uranium cores under the Ahmad program. That was one of the facilities that was simply not known about um, until the archives were found, and it was a, a production-scale plant. And it was and and this guy running that construction operation is now head of the IRGC Aero, Aero Force, um, or how do you say it? Aerospace. Aerospace uh, Force, a guy named Haji Zadi. So he's running the ballistic missile program, and he was deeply involved in the nuclear weapons program. So again, you have a lot of reasons to involve the missile program and seek limitations. Now, how likely to get? Um, I would 
looking back at the archives and what we know, um, we thought they had a nuclear weapons program. That, I didn't think it was that big. But they downsized it dramatically under pressure. They didn't get rid of it, and we're living with that legacy now. But they did get scared. And why did they get scared? They were worried about being invaded. They were worried about what would happen to them economically. They were scared of what an aggressive IEA was going to find and, and reveal internationally. So I think pressure does work with Iran, and I think it's worth building that pressure now and using some of the same tools but, but modernized. We know much more of how to deploy those tools. And so I think uh, I can't predict the likelihood, but I can certainly predict that there's a fighting chance that if we pursue this strategy and don't bend – in a sense, bend to the, let's say, the people who want to just rejoin the deal and drop the sanctions, that we have a, a chance to solve this problem once and for all. I think I agree with everything David said. Uh, Iran certainly doesn't have any use for enriching uranium. We knew when uh, Iran started enriching that there was a glut of enriched uranium on the open market. And it didn't make economic sense for Iran to have this program. That's why many people were sure this is a weapons-related program. I guess the only thing I would add is that we need real IAEA inspections. We have to have IAEA inspections of military sites. This reluctance to offend the Iranians and, and come up with a, with a conclusion of noncompliance, this has to stop. I might add that when word of the Israelis acquiring the nuclear archive documents got around in early uh 2018, the Iranians started to empty out this warehouse in Tehran. Now, the IAE was informed of this by the Israelis, and as I said, they didn't bother to inspect it until April of 2019. And I imagine a lot of the evidence was gone by, by, by then. This is just unacceptable. We have to have serious inspections. I'd like to see any place, any time inspections in Iran. There were Obama officials who talked about that. I know the Iranians aren't crazy about that. But look, the Iranians have to win the confidence of the world after repeatedly violating their nuclear obligations over decades. So I think we have a, a lot of work to do, but I, I, I agree with everything David said. And then if I could just ask uh, one question of Chris, and, and that is that uh, you know, you mentioned the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guards, and it's it's clear that that force was involved, uh, according to a, a recent State Department uh, report, in the deaths of more than 600 American troops in Iraq uh, were killed just through the use of EFPs by uh, Iraqi militias uh, supported by Quds Force. Uh, and I can understand Quds Force uh, – role in in that kind of a theater. But what was surprising to me was the Quds Force involvement in the 2011 uh, terrorism plot in Washington that was aborted, uh, was broken up. Because uh, uh, I don't remember uh, too many plots, uh, Iranian plots, inside the U.S. I, th I think there was an Iranian exile assassinated in, in Bethesda in 1980. 1981, Mr. Uh, but that was a huge uh, taboo that the Quds Force crossed in, in 2011. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, did the U.S. ever uh, take action to retaliate or respond to that? And what's your assessment of, of that plot against the Saudi ambassador? Uh, and I guess maybe you could say a little more about the plot because it, it was so blatant. 
Yes, the, uh, the, the plot you referred to uh, right after the revolution was remarkable because uh, a man named David Belfield uh, carried out a murder in Bethesda and then escaped to Iran. And he was seen there some few years ago and profiled in a newspaper. So he's apparently living at liberty and no action's been taken against him. In the present case, the, the perpetrator was uh, uh, Arbab Siar was his name, and he was involved in a remarkably complicated thing involving perhaps uh, Los Cidos, uh drug dealers uh, in terms of uh, hitmen, but uh, there was known uh, financing, large transfers of money uh, back and forth, and there's some pretty apparently good telephone uh, intelligence uh, on the plot. Uh, he admitted upon his uh, conviction in a New York court to working directly with the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, so it was indeed a remarkable case. And uh, the New York Times covered the story uh, about the plot as well, um, you know, not, uh, not too long after that, the, those court cases. And it was clear uh, from, from the story and his, from his admissions uh, that it was both complex and lethal. And, and I introduced it only in the way that I had in the talk as a, a kind of mirror of some of the other attacks on other Saudis carried out by Iranians abroad. Uh, the campaign against Israelis is the strongest, probably. Uh, but maybe coming a close second is the Iranian campaign against Saudi diplomats abroad. Okay, and with that, let me open it up to uh, members of the audience. And uh, I could just ask if you wait till the uh, microphone comes along uh, and identify yourself. Mr. Peter. Thank you, uh, Peter Brooks Heritage Foundation, and thank you all for your very comprehensive uh, presentation this afternoon. I wanted to get into one area that you didn't touch upon, and uh, um, perhaps uh, you can say a few words about. I'm interested in the um, in chemical weapons in Iran, uh, especially interested in the state of the program in Iran and uh, how Iran may be involved in what we're seeing in Syria with the use of chemical weapons um, by the uh, Syrian uh, Syrian regime. So, thank you. Well, there recently was a finding by the State Department, and I think in the annual compliance report, that Iran appears to be in violation uh, of the Chemical Weapons Convention. It has a covert chemical weapons program. When I worked for John Bolton, when he was Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security, he also thought there was compelling evidence that Iran had covert VW and CW programs. I don't know that the biological uh, weapons program in Syria comes from Iran. It wouldn't surprise me. Could all, I'm sorry, chemical it could be coming from from Iran. Uh, it could also be coming uh, from from North Korea. Uh, but I, I think it's something we need to spend more time on. Are we seeing any involvement of the IRGC in, in chemical warfare operations in, in Syria? Uh, I can't to personally speak to it. Uh, I, their involvement in Syria is clear in terms of ferrying fighters back and forth, and the intimate relationship with Hezbollah comes into play there because Hezbollah's got a lot of ground forces in the in the insurgent theater, uh, and of course, in, in, and then in defense of the Assad regime. Uh, but as to chemical weapons, I can't speak to that. 
I know uh, historically Iran did use chemical weapons uh, in the Iran-Iraq war, although it was it was responding to I- Iraq's uh, initial use of chemical weapons, and Saddam Hussein did use those against his own people, particularly the, the Kurds at Halabja. Uh, so Iran definitely had chemical weapons at one point, but I haven't seen uh, reports that it's been uh, involved in, in Syria. There's also been inferences in some of the Israeli press about that uh, that the Iranians are working with Hezbollah on developing delivery systems and chemical weapons in Syria, and some of the attacks by the Israeli forces have been related to that. So, but it's it, it's it's somewhat murky. That's why I was wondering if you could add any additional information to that. Okay, uh, this man right here. The first. Uh issue I want clarification from the moderator, that uh, whether these sessions that you guys have, the lectures, is it kind of for promotion of freedom of speech or it is indoctrination? The reason I'm asking, I see whether I could ask question that you, the panel doesn't like it or no, I got to get away with it and tell Thank well, you. if you could ask a concise question, that would be great. Yeah, okay. Uh, my first question is that, of course, it's uh, uh, quite uh, appropriate that pro- uh, promotion or uh, uh, weapon of mass destruction, including nuclear weapon, is a very good idea. But why nobody over here talks about Israel that they have, they, they are telling that they have at least 200 uh, weapons, uh, nuclear weapons in the Middle East, and actually uh, it goes back to the during uh, uh, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, that there was at the time after his assassination, assassination that Israelis were involved in that assassination because he was against that. Uh, uh, they have. Uh, uh, okay. On that I could take that's, that. Uh, I mean, that cons- that's a new conspiracy theory I've never heard of that the Israelis were involved in the Kennedy assassination. But let me just answer your question. And the big difference is that Israel did not sign the non-proliferation treaty in Iran did. So if anybody doesn't sign the non-proliferation, they have entitled to do anything they want? Because Israel didn't sign, so the, the Israel yeah. is entitled to yeah. commit I, I think any it, crime. The one I, and the other issue, as the, all the stuff that you guys are talking about, what Iran is doing, is exactly what Israel and also is even U.S. and CIA are doing all over the world. Why, when it goes to Iran, is important, but when it when it's done by uh, uh, what, yeah. what what the Bolton is doing, uh, I have told him in one of the Congress in his face that uh, well, is he the uh, uh, U.S. government uh, uh, employee or uh, uh, American citizen right. or none is us, Israeli? Okay, so. none of us could. Uh, none of us are U.S. government employees, but. Uh, you know, I think you, your questions are uh, meant to ob- obscure the issue rather than bring it out. Let's, let's just say that Iran is the foremost sponsor of terrorism in the world today, and therefore it's important that it not get the world's most terrifying weapons. Okay, can, can we ask this man? Good morning. Uh, Dave Newman, G9. My question for 
all of you, is is the threat posed by a nuclear Iran greater in if we consider any potential relationship with Russia in the region and what that might mean for the future of uh, U.S. defense policy in that region, multi-domain operations, that sort of thing? I don't understand. Is the re- how is this related to Russia? Would a nuclear Syria be an appealing partner to Russia, and how would nuclear that Iran impact <clears throat> nuclear Iran? Nuclear Iran. Apologies. Would a nuclear Iran be an appealing partner for Russia in terms of stymieing U.S. military or defense policy in the region in the future? Yeah. I'll say something. To- I think the Russia has been um, collaborating with Iran and has tried to help it uh, develop its nuclear program. It helped it build the Bushir uh, light water reactor facility that had been damaged in the Iraq-Iran war. It's offered other technology. So has China. Uh, I don't think Russia wants to see a nuclear Iran because it would be a nuclear state on its border that I think are, that the Russians think is unstable. But the Russians often also are looking for business with, with, with Iran. Um, I, I guess at the end of the day, I don't think the Russians want to see a, a nuclear Iran, Iran with, with nuclear weapons. I think they, they would see that as uh, very destabilizing and not in their, not in their interests. Uh, and, and actually, he brought up a question that I've wondered about uh, before. It's, uh, it, in 2007, Israel did bomb a nuclear reactor uh, or nuclear facility built by North Korea in Syria. And I've always been skeptical that the Syrians uh, had the financial wherewithal and technical uh, abilities to attain a nuclear weapon on the on their own. And I'm wondering if uh, if if either one of you have heard uh, uh, that perhaps Iran was assisting Syria in that nuclear effort in order to move uh, things out of its own territory, which it knew would be increasingly scrutinized, or is it possible that that was an exclusively Syrian-North Korean deal? Fred may want to add to this. I mean, we never found any evidence of Iranian involvement in in, the operation in Syria. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but we never saw it. But but we saw more involvement of North Korea because they, they needed to separate plutonium. I mean, the, the declassified literature really focused on the reactor because that was ironclad. And um, and particularly the CIA wanted a victory, and, and, and the reactor was the way to do it. But there are pretty substantial evidence that the North Koreans were Interested in the reprocessing, but there was also interest in in supply among kind of renegade suppliers. Some associated or working with the what's called the AQ Con network um, to get an equipment that would be associated with building the reprocessing plant that was being acquired through these kind of uh, well black market suppliers. Um, there's still a mystery of how this uranium for the reactor would have been gotten. Most bets are it. It would be North Korea. But but I think one of the things the North Koreans were doing was they weren't making everything. They would they would facilitate the purchase of things internationally for Syria. So and that raises the price. So I, I w- we've always assumed Syria had enough money. 
because this is so important to them. But we, but yeah, we never, we never could find a connection to Iran. John Bolton has said before he entered office that he suspected that uh, Iran played a role in in developing the Al Khabar uh, nuclear plant that Israel destroyed in two thousand seven. Uh, there's been a number of reports of, of, of Iranian technicians and scientists showing up at North Korean nuclear and, and missile tests in North Korea, which suggests that there's some collaboration between Iran and North Korea. It wouldn't surprise me that Iran was trying to outsource some nuclear work at a location that, I, that the IAEA was unlikely to look. And I wonder right now if Iran is outsourcing nuclear weapons work to North Korea so uh, it will not be caught violating the JCPOA in Iran. This woman right here. Hi, I have two questions. The first is whether you think that Iran suffers from what I call the Gaddafi effect, which is the idea that if an authoritarian leader does cave to Western pressure, then there'll be a threat of an invasion. And this, my second question is whether you endorse Mossad's um, assassination of key Iranian nuclear scientists, because there's definitely an argument that if the U.S. can deemed like the entire Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist, then Iran can easily um, brand um, organizations like Mossad as terrorists if they conduct less than legal actions as those I described before. Thank you. Jim, I'd start just a part, just taking a small piece of that really interesting couple of questions. Um, I was uh, uh, displeased just as a, as a citizen when the United States threw its weight into the war in Libya against uh, Gaddafi. Uh, it seemed to me that, although this sounds so strange, uh, over long-time pressures, Gaddafi had begun to be uh, a more reasonable participant in the world and, in fact, a, a reasonable ally to the United States in some very strictly limited ways. So having done things like uh, something very shocking at the time of spring 86, actually bombing the country because of his export of terrorism, the United States and its other allies had, and neighbors had worked with Libya for a long time and begun to get a more moderated foreign policy. And, uh, and in fact, uh, I gather probably some pretty good intelligence flows out of Libya with respect to Sunni extremists who even Gaddafi was afraid of. And so then the United States, including Ambassador Robert Joseph, who I'm pleased to have met and did a nice book about this, and British intelligence and diplomats, executed a remarkable accord in which the WMD equipment of several kinds was, ex was extracted out of Libya peaceably and put on a ship and sailed away. And so that was a symbol by about 0304 that our cooperation with that regime was fairly successful. So although it does seem strange even to myself uh, to be mentioning this, having studied that, that uh, Libyan export of terrorism for a long time, they did somewhat reform. And I hope we might have worked uh, somewhat with them. The term terrorism, and this does, goes back to another gentleman's question, uh, isn't something we just fling around. When Qaddafi changed policy, he deserved to be worked with reasonably, and we did that. Uh, but all, last year, uh, you know, uh, Austria, France, the Netherlands, Albania, Germany were all touched by terrorism incidents. 
is nicely reported on by Matthew Levitt, a scholar here in town. And in these cases, you had some uh, people attached to the regime who defected or something, but they're innocent, uh, you know, and you have public rallies involved in a, in a big bomb plot. Uh, in which all kinds of children or, or uh, innocent passerbys, journalists, uh, authorities in Paris, wherever this plot was going to happen, could have been murdered. Um, so it, it's important to distinguish uh, the kind of, uh, you know, war-making which every state exercises based on sometimes very good reasons and under international law. And these other kinds of activities were just flagrantly uh, outside uh, international law. That's just a piece of the good question. I hope my colleagues can be more useful than I was. Yeah, let me add, I mean, in terms of the effect of Gaddafi's killing uh, on Iran, I mean, Iran so mistrusts us that they're, they're way beyond that. I mean, they, um, they're, whatever deal is set, it, Iran will ensure its own security. And, and they see us as essentially trying to, at our, at our core, trying to overthrow the regime. So I think that they factor that in. So does North Korea, actually. Um, and on the assassination one, I wasn't quite sure. I mean, do you, you mean kill, the Iranians would use the designation as an excuse to make their own designation and kill Americans or – Okay, and then I don't I don't know for, I don't know if the U.S. is thinking of targeting the IRGC um, like they do Al Qaeda. I guess that's your question. Um, the you know the assassination question is quite sensitive, as you know, because of the um, somebody killed several nuclear scientists in Iran. It's interesting; those names show up in the archive documents as key leaders of the um, Ahmad. It's called the Ahmad Plan. I mean, you don't see them all yet, but we don't see all the documents. But two or three we've seen. And, and, and yet in the public literature, at least in one case, the person had no connection to the nuclear weapons program at all and was present, you know, looked like a professor. But in fact, he's on the kind of the top line of, of, of attendees at meetings, and the, and the document is a minute of the meeting where, let's say, in one case they're discussing building a nuclear test site. They're starting making the decision to actually start the project to build an underground nuclear test site. So, but I think the lesson from those assassinations, um, because Iran did retaliate and kill some people, from what I understand, um, the, was that it's not a path that is wise to follow. I mean, it's one thing if, if it's, you know, it's al-Qaeda where they're actively trying to kill Americans, but it's another if it's members of a military force or a nuclear program that, that isn't actively trying to kill Americans. I mean, is that, Chris, do you agree with that? I mean, is it, I mean, it's kind of the distinction I draw. Okay, uh, are there any other questions? Uh, if not, then uh, please join me in, in thanking the panel for a very illuminating discussion. Thank you. Thank you.